It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What is up, everybody? Or as I should say, what's real would be more apropos. It's the dub R question mark, the what's real podcast. And as those that maybe regularly listen can tell, this is not your typical opening. Uh, typically, it's our man, the host with the most, as we call him here in the family. Hey, Eel. And this is obviously a different rendition of the What's Real podcast. And as we're dubbing it this week, an emergency special, a What's Real remix. And uh, everything will be explained in due time. But as I must do from week to week, the consistent new content of the What's Real podcast must continue. It must go on. The journey must continue. We got to keep the defense of the podcasting tag team championships that we talk about week in and week out here on the show. Clang, clang, hey, yo, we're still doing it. We're still going to have some semblance of a show for you as we had some serious technical difficulties this week. So we'll get into everything, but as the J must start because it is still the world of the What's Real podcast. The J is as pumped as ever. The 21-inch pythons are in full swing like the mighty Thor's hammer. The pulsation nation is in full effect. The striation is glaring. So don't worry about that, folks. You're in good hands with your boy, the J. Even though, as we put it on the show, when we don't have Hey Ed, I am Hey Edless, but I am also wizardless this week as far as, um, I mean, he'll be producing me. Uh, we still got the tag team going, the management of Cam. Uh, Cam, the wizard behind the boards, will be putting the show together, of course, as always. However, I am here solo, Han Solo, uh, this week on the show to open things and explain things and kind of give you a rundown of the What's Real emergency special, a What's Real remix. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned, we've had some serious technical difficulties this week. It was out of our hands. We did do our thing. We recorded an entire near three-hour rendition of the What's Real podcast with episode 122, which would have been dubbed uh, the, the Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. And as you can tell, stuttering a bit here, as you can tell. Bear with me, folks. As you can tell, I don't typically go Han Solo and uh, open the show by myself, uh, especially without any sort of a co-host. Usually, Cam will pop in the wizard uh, when Hey Ed can't, and that wasn't uh, available in this dire straits of a situation. As they say, though, all the cliched things, desperate times call for desperate measures. The show must go on. So that's where we're at. So as we do, we're kind of still putting something together for you folks because we want to be consistent and still have some semblance of content here from our world coming out to you. And so the situation was we recorded the show. Uh, it was a, a great show. We had a blast, as we always do covering all the ground that we promote on the show under the pop culture umbrella, everything from Jeff Hardy, the wrestler's recent arrest in the Variety Hour, to, of course, another trip to one of our favorite places on Earth, the last drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy, to a full-on review of season A, as they call it, or season, uh, you know, the first half of season four of Stranger Things, because Stranger Things has been a favorite thing of Ed and I's since it came out. And if you can believe it, it was delayed so much due to the pandemic and varying things that season four uh, debuted. Um, and we, we haven't been able to cover any of the previous seasons up through season three. We started the podcast uh, after everything was out. So it was the first Stranger Things review here on the show. Um, a, a wonderful show, if as we say on the show here, toot toot. I don't say so myself. However, uh, some serious technical difficulties afterwards uh, wiped out the show. It is in the ether. We couldn't salvage it. It's a sad thing, but as I was saying earlier, the show must go on, 
And we here at the What's Roll podcast are as professional as we can. And we just keep the train a rolling. We brush it off like the great philosopher Jay-Z says, brush, brush the dirt off your shoulders, which we did here. And we're, we put together a, a fresh remix of a show. So what that's going to entail is it's kind of uh, along the lines of how we do the year end uh, kind of tradition here on the What's Roll podcast since we started in January 2020. And we consider consider our years, our, our seasons, just to break things up somewhat uh, collude the show and, and organize it a bit. So, of course, our first year in 2020 was season one, 2021 being season two. And at the end of each of those years, we put together a best of what's real. And we took clips, some of our funnest segments, and kind of mashed them together with Cram's, Cam's great wizardry with putting together the editing and things and put together a cool package of varying different segments and fun and hijinks here on the What's Real podcast. So this is kind of going to be a version of that that we're dubbing the What's Real Emergency Special Remix. So you're going to hear a bunch of varying segments as we do. That's what we do best. Uh, pop culture experts, as, as we call ourselves here on the show. And you're going to hear this week after my stupid ass shuts up. If you didn't shut me off or fast forward me, I appreciate it. And as I always say, if you're hearing what I'm saying right now, I truly lo love you. As we say, stay safe, stay healthy, all that kind of stuff, throwing out the traditional what's real terminology. So this week, the emergency special remix is going to entail due to the recent passing of the great actor Ray Liotta, one of my favorite actors of all time. I've been watching a bunch of his interviews, you know, past interviews he's done through uh, YouTube and other sources. I, I get magazine subscriptions and have the, the People magazine issue that did a, a pretty cool few page tribute to him. And I'm, I'm coming just off that from, from being at the pool with the kids and, and reading through that. So really pumped up to introduce episode 114 entitled Billy Bats. Of course, the, the character from the classic film Scorsese and Goodfellas. And we're gonna have the Movies That Made Us segment from that show with uh, our review of Goodfellas from episode 114. Then we're going to throw on some Thursday night prime action. That's right. Our infamous slash famous action segment, the most explosive segment in weekly podcasting that uh, is currently on a, a hiatus and will be making its triumphant return sooner than later. But we're throwing some TNP on with a really fun review with Gary Daniels and the ultimate warrior of all people from the 1990s. And this was a definitive Thursday Night Prime from the actual Thursday Night Prime that Ed and I have described as the homage to our segment from HBO back in the day. And that is firepower. And then up next, we're going to throw on one of our past trips to the last drive-in with one of my filmmaking inspirations, one of the greatest producers of all time. Some people would call him the greatest producer of all time, maybe specifically the greatest independent film producer of all time, Roger Corman. And that was from episode 76, which we did entitled Corman. So there's going to be a Roger Corman uh, double feature that we cover on the last drive-in from episode 76. Then this one was a very special one to Hey, Ed and I. So I wanted to throw this one on here. This is for back from episode 46. Uh, as I mentioned, we're uh, kind of throwing an audible here after episode 122 kind of combusted, unfortunately. So we'll be bringing you episode 122 freshly. Uh, as we do, we'll keep our consistency. We'll still throw on some of the stuff we're going to talk about that we lost uh, with the technical difficulties moving forward. Uh, but my point is that is 122 episodes coming, and this goes back to episode 46. Uh, but this was entitled uh, Wolfman's Got Nards, and it was from a documentary 
that was on one of our favorite movies as a kid, uh, Hey Ed and I, and that was of course The Monster Squad. So this documentary um, that made for the film The Monster Squad, Wolfman's Got Nards, we, I wanted to throw that on there because that's, that's very special. And as is tradition, because I am going to shut the fuck up because this is terrible and I appreciate you bearing with me if you're still with me. Uh, we're going to throw on goofs as we always have to. It's a bunch of varying different full on goofs or goofs. I picked uh, goofs or goofs from episodes 48, 50 and 104. There's some funny stuff in there. Hey, Ed and the Jays, typical shenanigans when it comes to our closing comedy segment, the classic that we made ourselves and we call ourselves classic, of course, the GRG goofs or goofs visiting the waterfall of goose to end the show as we must here on the What's Real podcast. But as I said, um, being Hey Edless this week, uh, not having Cam able to jump on here, I hope you put up with me just to introduce what happened and introduce kind of what we had for this idea for a What's Real remix. Still throwing some cool stuff at you from some of of our past classical entertainment that we throw out there here on the What's Real podcast. So bear with us, folks, as I hoped you bared with your boy, the J. I'm still mumbling and stumbling, but I love you all and enjoy the emergency special Remix here on the What's Real podcast. Yo, everybody, welcome back to the What's Real podcast. And if you're hearing the Jay's voice right now, you know it's a little different because we throw the curveball a bit here when we do the next segment. As it's continued here on the What's Real podcast for the month of April, it is the movies that made us. This week, it's the Jay's pick. And of course, it's the classic from the great director, one of my favorite directors, if not the favorite director of mine of all time, Martin Scorsese, and is a 1990 American biographical crime film, Goodfellas. Of course, Goodfellas, as we said, was directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Nicholas Pelagi and Scorsese, as far as the script goes, based off of the book Wise Guys by Nicholas Pelagi, and of course, produced by Erlen Winkler. It is a film adaptation of the 1985 nonfiction book of the same name, Wise Guy, that I mentioned, and of course, starring a who's who, including Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco, and Paul Servino. So let me just add this in here, the J. Goodfellas, the true story of Henry Hill, a half-Irish, half-Sicilian Brooklyn kid who is adopted by neighborhood gangsters at an early age and climbs the ranks of a mafia family under the guidance of Jimmy Conway. Jimmy Conway, played by the great Robert De Niro. And we'll get into it, but we always talk about the reason that we came up with this segment. You know, we always joke that it's the original, unoriginal take off of the Netflix series of the same name. But uh, that's why we emphasize the us, because these are films that go beyond the entertainment realm and had personal influence on Hey Ed and I's lives. And Goodfellas, as Ed knows, which I won't divulge into here on a podcast, but has a lot of similar in certain ways um you know parallels to the jay's upbringing um you know i'm I'm part italian and i'm gonna leave it at that because there's a little thing called omerta which i know hey ed knows that term and i'm not stupid enough to go on a podcast and, and blurb out some, some personal stories at least at this time you know but that, that's one big thing off the bat that goodfellas again it's those things in in entertainment that again kind of wire into your 
actual life and personal experiences that really have that personal emotional uh, effect on you. And, and that's, you know, my upbringing and some of the guys I know, and as we always say, Hey Ed, all these people that we came up with that are quote unquote characters. And you know, this, you know, from you and I ourselves, it will fully admit complete characters. And there's just so yep. many of them that from Goodfellas are similar to a lot of guys that, that I knew coming up as a kid and things like that. Absolutely. And I'll tell you a funny little story here and there will be names and things changed to protect the. Yes. <laughs> um, so as a kid, every year for Christmas, I used to go to an Italian social club with my grandfather for Christmas and you would come home with a big ass stocking filled with all kinds of stuff. You would get to meet Santa Claus. They had video games and pizza and all kinds of stuff. And I used to look forward to this every year because it was such like they really did it up. And uh, I, you know, I have so many memories doing this with my grandfather. So fast forward, I'm in my 20s and uh, my uncle had passed away and they had rented out the same Italian social club uh, for us to have like the um, the after services. So we're sitting there and I'm, you know, hanging out with family and stuff, drinking a couple beers and I decide to go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, I come out of the bathroom and they have a wall of pictures at this social club with all of its founding members. So I start reading them and it reads as a who's who of it, it looks like characters from the movie Goodfellas. So I'm like, OK, I get it. Like, I know how the, the Italian social club was started. Right. And then I started to realize that I knew several people on the on the wall and they were friends of my grandfather's. And then I quickly would go back to the service with for my uncle and said, hey, mom, I got some questions for <laughs> you, which she answered. And uh Let's just say my grandfather had more to do with things than I actually knew until after he was well gone. <laughs> but yeah, I know these guys, two big, bald Italian men, fucking guys that would literally say, hey, you know, like pat you on the head when you're 10 and give you like a 50 <laughs> for no reason. Like it was pretty prevalent back then, especially in Pittsburgh, like in the 1980s, the J. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know mobsters were around yeah and, <laughs> and the fact thing. that in this you know both the wise guys book and of course goodfellas film the the pittsburgh connection is, is talked about a lot so uh you know we won't divulge too much here on the show but uh, a lot of Which a lot I, of correlation i know that whole story and yeah i it, it wasn't a mystery let's put it that way yeah <laughs> like we, I was kind of like after watching this as a, you know, like after I seen it for the first time and stuff like that, I was like, oh, I wonder what the Pittsburgh connection is. And let's just say when we first got wind of what the Internet was and at the time we called it the World Wide Web, I read a lot of stuff about this stuff and I quickly figured out what the Pittsburgh connection was. So it's 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 interesting because of that alone. And it would even become more interesting a few years after this was released to Jay because we were a few years older. Uh, we both were definitely Howard Stern. Uh, yep, I was going to mention Hill that. Good was call. A frequent guest on there, and he would talk talk about everything openly, like he wasn't even in the witness protection. <laughs> yeah, which you know that's that's how the film ends. But yeah, just to break it down for those you know listening that might 
happen to have not caught it yet or haven't seen it in a long time, you know, just breaking down the plot as, as we go over the story and, you know, Hey, Ed had the initial uh, synopsis, but uh, like, like we talked about Henry Hill, of course, becomes enamored uh, in the criminal life. And of course we'll throw out, talk about famous taglines. Hey, Ed, this might be one of the best ever. The quote from the film that pretty much opens it up, you know, it starts the credits and everything. Uh, but of course was always enamored of the criminal life and mafia presence in his working class Italian American neighborhood in Brooklyn and begins local working for the local capo, Paulie Cicero, and his associates, Jimmy Conway and Tommy DeVito, uh, fellow juvenile delinquent, of course, greatly played by the great Joe Pesci, uh, who's the only one oh. to have won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor from Goodfellas. And we'll we'll break down some of the statistics in, in a little bit here, too, with Goodfellas and, and its awards and, um, you know, how, how much... Uh, um, people love this film, you know, high, it's pretty much regarded as one of the greatest films ever made in the gangster genre. Uh, but you could probably Dude, put that as one of the greatest films ever made. Even the Godfather without a doubt in my mind is the greatest mafia movie ever made, but Goodfellas is the most accessible. Yep. Cause Godfather is, it's, it's, it's an epic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a slow yes, burn in a, a lot of ways. Yes. It's it's not for everybody. We're good fellas. I think most people could kind of watch it and and get into it to some degree. I mentioned to you as well because we were talking about this off air that we could review Goodfellas whenever it's one of the both of our mutual favorite movies of all time like just just yep. say because we're such big film fans just uh, you know in our top 100 of all time uh e e Without easy and but not nonetheless I haven't seen it in a while and that's why I love doing this segment on the show it just gives me uh, an excuse to revisit some of these films that I've watched numerous times but uh haven't put it in in a while so I did re-watch Goodfellas <laughs> for this and it still holds up to this day and as much as I do remember everything Maybe it's because of like the whole PC culture getting thrown at us on a regular basis and, and varying things like that. But man, this was very violent, which I always knew. Oh, yeah. But still for yep. the time, man, like in 1990. Wow. Like, you know, for something to be this critically acclaimed and go to the Oscars, it shows you how good of a job Martin Scorsese and his team did because it, it could have been ostracized just for the the sheer violence of it in a lot of ways, you know, in, in certain you know, circles possibly, you know, but it didn't, it, yeah. it, it kind of preceded any, anything like that because of course it's like anything. Hey Ed, we even say that to this day, you're making a film about gangsters. They come from the world of violence. That's what it is. So it, it'd be disrespectful to the genre, if you will, to True. not have a violent gangster film of this time. Yeah. They, they lead these guys specifically lead it a very violent life. So it's, it's absolutely part of what they were doing. Uh, the, the scene that immediately comes to mind in the movie is when they go and murder a guy, have to drive to Joe Pesci's mother's house to get a, a butcher knife. He tells her it's a it, it was a deer that he hit. She cooks them a bunch of food. They just murdered a guy. And here they are fucking all eaten. Every <laughs> just like it's know? nothing. Yeah. And dude. The, OK, so this is something that I wanted to do with you with this. I know this is your segment, but I, I think you'll understand where I'm coming from here. When it comes to Goodfellas, the devil is in the details. And I mean, there's so many interesting little things that they put in the movie, okay? And there's a ton of them. So I figured the Jay, I'll come with one, you come with one. Let's go back and forth for a little bit. Little things that you remember in this movie that stick out to you, okay? Let me get it started, right? The character of Paul Sorvino's in jail, he always cut the garlic because he would do it with a, a yeah, razor blade. Yeah, super thin. Cut it thin so yeah. it liquefies in the sauce. 
Is there something like that that comes to mind for you in this one? Of course. I mean, just off the bat, I'll think of some other ones because, I mean, this is like the most obvious. It's almost like palm the forehead, as the Jay says here on the show. But it just sticks out every time. And that's the the famous scene where Pesci is just holding court in the Coca Cabana Club and cracking everybody up. <laughs> and it's the classic, <laughs> Why you know, you're laughing at me. Am I a funny guy? And my like, yeah, you're just you're funny. Like, what do you mean by funny? I'm 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 funny. I make you laugh. You know that that whole scene. Um, you know, it's wait, it's wait. not the I, little intricacy you're talking about. But I just have to shut that out initially, as if we're talking about specific moments, because that just gets me every time. And there's no way I'm gonna talk about this movie without fucking saying my favorite goddamn quote from it. I laugh every fucking time I watch the movie. Oh, why don't you go and get your fucking shine box? (laughs) (laughs) And and that is what's so great about this film, man, because it's such an epic. And you you know what they say, like I you know shout out the cliched things. I laughed, I cried, you know. But that's how this is. Like I said, it's super violent. But then there's parts that just crack you up. And and again, that's my personal gravitation towards this. That it reminds me in in different ways, of course, of, of a lot of these character guys that I was alluding to earlier that just you know they they can just crack you up in just everyday life and they're not even trying to be funny it's that kind of humor yes yeah it's dude that's this is one of my favorite things too what is rule number one in goodfellas the jay you must always do this and you must never stop until it's done yeah yeah do you know what i'm talking about yeah that part yeah yeah no Stir the fucking oh, sauce. Oh, stir the sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Keep when stirring we the sauce. Is he stirring the sauce or they stirring? Yeah. Makes you, then it's like, hey, I can't go. What do you mean you can't go? We got to leave to go to the airport now. I don't have my hat. Yeah. Okay. You don't need your fucking hat. We can go. They have to it's go get the fucking hat. hat. Yeah. Yeah. I take her back to get her fucking lucky hat. Oh, that's <laughs> like, great. And then the helicopters, that's another. Yeah, when he that's that always up. stands out when he's on the coke binge and he's like super paranoid and just a completely and, paranoid wreck. And of course, they that one of the major things that happens in the movie is the robbery of the LaGuardia, you know, oh, of course. Cars. Yep. And then they start murdering everybody that had something to do with it. And of course, Samuel L. Jackson was the driver yep. of the car and he's one of the first ones to get buried or uh, murdered. But the funniest part to me, though, is like whenever they come in, he's like, hey, I'm just going to go talk to him. You want me to make some coffee? Yeah, make some coffee. So they kill him. Yeah, he's like, what the fuck you doing with the coffee? He's like, I thought you said you wanted to. He's like, would you put the fucking coffee down? We just fucking killed the guy. Get the fuck out of here. There's a ton of shit like that in this movie. And dude, another thing, and this is something that I don't think people mention enough when it comes to Goodfellas. It, because everything in it is legitimately so great. You know what is so underrated in this movie? The Jay? What's that? The fucking soundtrack. Oh, of course. The soundtrack is fucking Phenomenal. flawless. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, it's so perfect. The fucking, oh, man. When they start showing all the dudes that get killed after the Lohanza heist, and they're all they're finding guys in fucking frozen trucks and underneath bridges and the whole fucking thing. Like the songs play like, oh, it's so perfect. It's dude, this movie's a great, I mean, there's plenty of other examples, but Scorsese was making great films in the late seventies and in 90, he was still making shit like this. I mean, he'd go on to make other great stuff. Don't get me wrong, but like Goodfellas is not just a great film. It's not just an Oscar worthy film. 
it's literally like an iconic American film. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, completely, man. Completely. And and it's one of those movies too, which, which I love when it's done right because it can drag. But again, it goes into the Tony Hawk doc. We were talking the flow of the what's real podcast where I mentioned that I just like the, everything put together. So it, it just goes to where it could be like a three hour film and it flies. And I could tell you just rewatching yeah. Goodfellas. It's a two and a half hour film and it just, it's and that's my point. It's just so perfectly paced. But the, the thing about it is it covers from when Henry Hill's a kid in the 1950s all the way to the 1990s, you know, or 1980s. Yeah. So it's just all all that because I mean, that's that's another like kind of one of their their taglines. You know, it's like decades of life in the mafia, you know, and, and that's yeah. what this encompasses. And it's just such a fascinating story, let alone the fact that it's it's all based off of a true story. With, with Henry Hill. And, you know, like you mentioned, he was on Howard Stern and, and was alive uh, until not, not ridiculously long ago. Right. Hey, Adam when he passed away, particularly. Yeah. But, it wasn't too long ago. I don't think, I don't think it was more than a decade ago or anything like that. Right. So, I mean, as we say here on the show, 2012, he passed away. So yeah, not, there you not go. ridiculously about long. a decade, but, but yeah, this was just such a classic movie since the first time I saw it. I, you know, I think another aspect of it, cause this could work with certain movies. And I used to kind of joke and say, I've never not liked a movie that had narration the whole time from Shawshank Redemption. You know, you could go on and on, That's but Goodfellas true, stands out with maybe arguably the best narrated film ever with Ray Liotta, the way he narrates the whole picture. And, and without a doubt, it's the movie that completely made Ray Liotta. It was the star making vehicle for Ray. Oh, Liotta, for sure. 100%. Hey, throw it up. Hey, Ed, I'll knock it down. Cause I was going to mention some, some fun facts and things like that. So uh, okay. with Goodfellas, once Robert De Niro agreed to play Conway, uh, Scorsese was able to secure the money needed to make the film. And you know, how that goes, Hey, Ed, it's like, okay, we got yep. De Niro. We got, the, we got the budget. Uh, so the, the, the Scorsese would cast Ray Liotta after De Niro saw him in another great man and director's uh, play, uh, or I'm sorry, it wasn't a play. It was Jonathan Demme's film, Something Wild from 86. Okay. And Scorsese was, okay. would go to say he was surprised by Liotta's explosive energy in that film. And Liotta had read Pelagi's book when it came out, was fascinated by it. And a couple of years afterwards, his agent told him Scorsese was going to direct, direct a film version. So he met the director over a period of a couple months and auditioned and campaigned aggressively for the role. But the studio, of course, and you know how this goes again with the politics. We've talked yep. about this a million times. They wanted a more well-known actor. Leota would later say, and we were just talking about this last week, those weird hindsight on who they were really considering for the role other than Leota. He said, I think they would have rather had Eddie Murphy than me. Talk about an alternate universe with Goodfellas starring Eddie Murphy as Henry Hill. Um, very yeah. unique concept there. Dude, okay, let, let's, uh, let's ask the question then, the Jay. So let's go back to 1990 in our heads. Who could play that role? Yeah. Who else do you think would have been a solid choice for that or maybe a good backup? You know my go-to, man, I, and I just think he could do it even though he wouldn't be kind of like visually who you might think. And I, Michael Keaton. I think he could pull yeah. this off. Yeah, no, I, I think especially at the time, you know, he would be weird obviously then than he is now. But I think, yeah, I think he could probably do something like that. That's a pretty good. That's dude. That's it's weird because I didn't know who I was going to say here, but that's literally probably the best answer for 19. I completely agree. Who would you that. think? hundred uh, percent. It wouldn't have been a bigger actor, but maybe like someone like um, Amanda Sante. Something That's like, yeah. you know, somebody we've seen, like who went on and played Gotti. So that yeah, makes sense. so like, yeah, like I don't now it's funny even thinking about it because uh, he would also go on to play Gotti in a terrible movie. But like 
and he hadn't made his resurgence at the time, but what if Travolta would have played? Yeah, that's a good point. I think he could pull it off. Let, let me tell you while we're at it, the actual ones considered for the role of Henry Hill. Okay. According to Wikipedia, of course. Sean Penn, okay. Alec Baldwin, Val Kilmer, or Tom Cruise? I, dude, I could see Kilmer doing it. I could see Penn. I, I, do. I could see Penn pulling off. I, I could, I, Penn, Penn's talented enough for it. And do, well, actually, here's the weird thing. If Penn would have did it, it would have been cool to make him look like Henry Hill. Yeah. Because he's smaller. He can do all that kind of shit. Like, I, yeah, I think that might have been a good idea, too. Yeah, but... But let's be honest, in 1990, I think Scorsese was even like, fucking Penn's a nightmare to work with. Yeah. And just uh, just Um, to round it out, considered for the role of Jimmy Conway, uh, of course, De Niro's role were Al Pacino and John Malkovich. So two amazing actors backed up there. And and I'll be honest, I don't like either one of them for that role. I think De Niro's perfect. Yeah, I mean, he was great. they They try and make him look like an Irishman. You know what I mean? Like, they try and, like, you know what I mean? Like, he's... They, this is and also too. This is like one of the first mob movies that I remember in any capacity to kind of tell you the story of like you're only made if you're Sicilian, right? Like they tell you that kind of stuff in The Godfather, but this is this is a movie that actively shows you that there are other people working outside of made men with the same people. They're just not made, so they're not as powerful. You know what I mean? But it really showed you how deep they went because they. They'd almost work with anybody at the point, but you're never getting in the inner circle. Right. Yeah, and that's how it was, man. Um, to, to round out some of the, the facts uh, around Goodfellas, as it premiered at the 47th Venice International Film Festival on September 9th, 1990, Scorsese did win the Silver Lion for Best Director, and the film was soon released in the U.S. on September 19th, 1990 by Warner Brothers. It was a budget of $25 million and grossed uh, just under... Uh, almost double that at 47 million gross. Uh, Goodfellas, of course, received widespread acclaim upon release. The critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes calls it arguably the high point of Martin Scorsese's career. The film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. As we mentioned earlier, Pesci, the only winner, though, for Best Supporting Actor. Got robbed, um, got robbed for Best Movie and Best uh, Director because Kevin Costner won Best Director and Dances with Wolves would win Best Movie, that, which is... that. A good movie, but it's a fucking travesty that it won over. Yeah, the and that's what happens too when you go back to things on like you know what what won compared to what didn't you know back in the day and and it happened, dude. And it happened to Scorsese and all that he was known for that. Yeah, recently. yeah, until yep. until the Departed. Uh, but yeah, so we'll round it out. Hey, Ed, Goodfellas is widely regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. We, we mentioned this earlier, particularly in the gangster genre. In 2000, it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. So again, the flow of the What's Real uh, podcast, we were talking about two great hip hop um, albums that were added to the U.S. Library of Congress, but of course, Goodfellas was was added way back in 2000, over 20 years ago. Such an amazing movie, a personal classic, and that's why it was this week's choice for the J on the movies that made us pay out. So, dude, let, let me ask you a quick question here while we're on the topic. Where does Goodfellas fit uh, for you as far as like your favorite Scorsese movie? Is it number one? Is it Close like what would you if if it's not number one which ones do you think are better see it's a tie I'd have to say it's probably my number one you okay. know and then dude I love Shutter Island I don't know if that would be considered yeah. like you know weird or what I I think that's like kind of hit or miss because a lot of people might say too that's 
one of those experiences you kind of only can watch once because it's all okay. the twists. You know what I mean? Yeah. But for me, yeah, because yeah. it's Scorsese, I like watching it over and over to pick up on everything yeah. and how good he did that. Yeah. You know? No, I could see that. Um, no, I mean, that I, I could sense. say I was I was honestly disappointed in The Irishman because I didn't think it was a bad movie. It was definitely long, drawn out. Um, watched it twice now. The second time, I think I found some of it a little better, you know, with, with that watch. But I think it was one of those things, again, it's another thing we talk about consistently, but, but I have to shout it out. I think it was just so built up in my head. A lot like the many okay. saints in Newark in a lot of ways, like things like that. Yeah, there's like it's like yep. what what can live up to that in your own head. So that might have been something to do with the Irishman. Uh, but yeah, again, to answer your question, man, he's one of my favorite directors. I love a ton of his stuff. But yeah, Goodfellas, Same. you know, just because of how classic it is, and and just rewatching it, you know, recently here, just still holds up like like nothing for a movie I've seen so many times. So that's why I'd have to kind of give that the nod. Yeah, I I would put Taxi Driver above that personally. Uh, Good Goodfellas is probably two for me, and then dude three. This might surprise a lot of people. Like it's probably either between Raging Bull and Color of Money. Man, I think Color of Money is it's so amazing. underrated. Yeah, that's why it's so tough. It, it's fucking Paul Newman. Like he's playing the fucking the you know the fucking character from uh, yeah Minnesota Fats right. Yeah, it's well. That was from the original. That's the hustler. The hustler. That's, that's what, what I was thinking of. Yeah, but I mean, dude, it's it's fucking that movie is it's so low key too, and it's just such fucking Newman's performance in it is just yeah. Shout, shout out to Dame, my partner in film. It's one of his favorites of all time. It's dude, it's so underrated, and it blows my mind that people don't talk about it as much as they they should. You know, because I think it's it's exceptional. It's really and dude, you, and Raging Bull is fucking brilliant. So and like, it's really difficult for me to to pick out of those two. I know I do love that's them both. that's tough. I love Raging Bull too. So it's I mean, dude, it's it's one of the best biopics I've ever seen. It's it's fucking mind blowing how fantastic they do with everything. And of course, it's it's basically the world's introduction to Joe Pesci. Is a serious character actor too, and yeah. he does. And, and don't don't forget about Mean Streets. That's a big influence. Mean Streets is great. Yeah, great movie. I'll have to shout out here uh, because I do it when I can. Hey Ed, the shameless self promotion. But our first feature film we made, Deference, was an homage to Scorsese and gangster films. And you, you know, you've seen Deference. You know, definitely a lot like Goodfellas with the narration and things. You know, our our version of it, uh, of course. You know, we didn't like copy off. Dude, of them, that uh, Mean Streets and Goodfellas huge influence. It reminds me a lot of Mean Streets. I definitely uh, see that whole. That was one of the bigger like influence. that's even, even the look. We kind of we kind of like, said it was me, Mean Streets stuff. meets Rounders, you know, because of the card game aspects as far as that yeah. went. But uh, it just okay. shows you the influence again. The movies that made us, you know, influenced uh, my own uh, producing independent film and and putting that gangster film together that we did with deference. So, uh, but to throw out the tagline, Hey Ed, like we said, a classic, the opening quote of the movie that sets the credits and sets the tone for the entire classic. That is good fellas. As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster three decades of life in the mafia. Good fellas, a Martin Scorsese picture and an utter classic. Absolutely. So we are up against our very last commercial break. Whenever we come back, we're going to be talking some goofs and wrapping up the show. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. What up, what up, what up, everybody? It's your boy, the J from the What's Real Podcast. Would you like to advertise on the What's Real Podcast? Hit us up today. We got easy 
quick, cheap, and affordable rates, and we have some fun and can do some great ads for you and your bare ass. Hit us up today at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com to advertise on the show of shows today, the Pod Upon Pods. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. And we're back, and it is that time once again for Thursday Night Prime. This week from 1993, we're talking firepower. Uh, the J is back to get together in one piece. Uh, it was just a flesh wound. I don't know what the hell happened. My hand is completely fine. Um, kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, you didn't need uh, you didn't need to add a hook or anything like fucking Captain Hook. No. But uh, yeah, I got the the wife and kids safe, and we got away from the cannibals. And yeah, it's just funny, man. We get in the zone of covering AEW, yeah. the zone of the podcast and our Zen, and then it just comes out of nowhere. That's what people got to understand. Like, how how aren't you guys used to this after a year and a half? And man, it's tough. You know, you tried fucking having cannibals run up on your ass. You know, what? I'll tell you what, the J. I don't know about you. But I think you make a great point there. Next week, I'm fucking putting up with this shit. If this happens next, whatever happens next week, they're going to be fucking sorry. So if you're listening, whoever these people are, okay, like me and the J are going to be ready next week. All right. We haven't been ready yet, but we're going to be fucking ready next week. I promise you. It's time to fight back. And we're ready for this week because we're talking Thursday Night Prime and we have a fucking doozy for you guys on this one. And I mean it. And the reason why I kind of picked this one out is because I remember this one vividly from being on Thursday Night Prime. So this actually aired as part of Thursday Night Prime for sure. So, and I love this, man. So this is a movie from 93. Here's our synopsis. In the year 2007, crime has risen at an exponential rate. Once highly populated metropolises such as Los Angeles are no longer inhabitable. These cities have transformed into hell zones ruled by violent street gangs. The hell zone, formerly called the zone of personal freedom, is a safe haven for criminal warpaths everywhere. This hell zone in LA is controlled by a criminal mastermind named Drexel. For the sake of entertaining his crowds of decadent losers and underlings, Drexel has staged a series of lethal, no-holds-barred matches in the death ring, where the winner takes all of the glory, while the defeated, one shall lose their self-respect and maybe just their head. Meanwhile, two brave <laughs> cops, Braniff and Sledge, must risk their badges and their lives when they enter Los Angeles's hell zone. Now, the reason why this movie stuck out to me and got on my radar originally is because the ultimate warrior himself, Jim Helwig, is in this movie. I was going to say, and, and it's uh, the beginning credits, it says introducing James Helwig. So that's, you know, you know how Warrior's personality was. He's like, WWF has nothing to do with this. I'm, I'm going to be introduced as Jim Helwig to start my acting career. Dude. So I was laughing to myself like a motherfucker before I even watched this movie. So as I always say, I use letterbox, you know, and I, I throw it on my wish list and you can see the cast in the movie. Well, first up, this is super weird, but Chad McQueen is our lead character, Braniff. That's, of course, Steve McQueen's son. 
And Gary Daniels, of course, Thursday Night Prime alum and one of our favorites, plays Nick Sledge. And then I and then I saw I was like, oh yeah, Jim Helwig, the Ultimate Warrior, plays the Swordsman. Then I watched the movie, and he doesn't play the Swordsman; he plays <laughs> the Swordsman, which is even fucking funnier. So at the beginning of the movie, we're kind of introduced to to the the two policemen. And uh, there's also a, a black woman that's a fellow cop that is pretty memorable, even though she's really like only in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie. She has some funny lines. There's some some good, you know, back and forth play here. But everybody in this movie is worried about the character, the swordsman. He's apparently this lunatic. Right. And finally, we see at the beginning of the movie, they have arrested the swordsman. And they're bringing him to this precinct, which was a huge mistake because it's not high security. So they bring in the ultimate warrior, a.k.a. the swordsman. And, you know, he's a massive man. You can pretty much tell compared to the regular actors in the movie as such. But this I forgot how fucking funny this scene is because he basically beats the shit out of everyone uh, then gets put into a holding cell because they have this, like, instead of a taser, it's like a thing that immobilizes people. And so he, they put him in jail and he gets broken out by some underlings and disappears. So the two main cops are like, we have to go to fight at this thing and kind of get undercover and see what we can find out, which they do. Now, there's so much funny shit in the beginning of this movie. But, dude, this is really weird to say this for a Thursday Night Prime. So, in this movie, the effects are horribly dated. They weren't really great at the time, from what I remember. The movie's poorly lit, and the acting performances have a lot to desire. But it is fucking <laughs> crazy, though, how good this movie is. And I'm just saying for right now, up until they get to the fighting. I was fucking shocked at how good this stuff was. It's as cheap and shitty as it is. This stuff was great. I was like in my glory. Even they even added in a couple chase scenes to this movie. And the movie did not really have money for chase scenes. So they just shot everything fairly dark. And it still fucking works. Yeah, some explosions there. Ambulance. Yeah, up. I mean. It's really amazing to me, first and foremost, at what they were able to accomplish with this movie. And even though some of the effects are really dated and don't look great, it almost doesn't matter. And it kind of fits in this goofy world that this movie exists in. And add in the fact that we did watch this on YouTube. True. So, but I do remember you know, no it, streaming service cleanup or Blu-ray. And I remember it being means. a pretty dark looking movie to begin with. Um, specifically during some of the scenes that I'll talk about later, it stuff kind of popped in my mind. But dude, I was really thrilled with this one because I remembered a lot of stuff differently than the way it happens in the movie. So, of course, as I said earlier, Gary Daniels, one of the Thursday Night Prime alumni, uh, plays Mike Sledge. And I forgot how great of a character he is. And I believe uh, he, he's this the is the best. first movie that made me fall in love with Gary Daniels, for sure. Without a doubt. it's He has more personality in this movie than all of his other movies combined. It's pretty impressive and amazing. 
Yeah, he's great. I, I just had to say off the, the bat here, I, I thought this might make you laugh because I don't know if you caught this one because as you always do, hey, yeah, you break down, broke down the synopsis, great. Uh, but the one on IMDb that was just like the the like layman's okay. terms synopsis, yep. in the near future, street gangs have their own city zones where cops can't go. Two tough cops are sent undercover in one of them to investigate an illegal cure for AIDS. But they must first fight in a death match, and the match is fixed. Dude, okay, I'm so <laughs> glad that you brought this up because I was I watched like the first ten minutes of this movie, and my jaw was on the floor. And this is why, because this is maybe more relevant now than ever. So they're sitting around in a bar, and the news is on, and they're talking about an AIDS vaccine. And they're like, and we completely eradicated AIDS by 1997. But the problem is now there are basically bootleg vaccines that are being made that don't cure anything. And it's because of one of these like gangs from, you know, the the hell zone is, is doing this. And I'm like, I can't believe <laughs> how fucking what are the chances yeah, like of that? dude what do you like like dude we live in the, the age of vaccine conspiracies and shit like that and i did not remember this in this movie at all and i was like dude this is one of those movies that's just a complete mess turd of a movie but somehow manages to get some amazing shit so right that they basically can forecast the future in a way it's amazing. <laughs> they they basically botched the year 2007, but nailed but 2021. Yes. And I'm expecting us to be fighting down at the fucking land of personal freedoms here any day now, the way we're going. So credit to Michael January, which is a great name. That's the writer. Michael, Michael January. January. That's tremendous. <laughs> but dude, this movie, my God. Okay. So... <laughs> I don't know if this struck you the same way that, that I did. It struck me, but our lead character in this movie, like I said, is Chad McQueen, Steve McQueen's son. And I'll be damned if this dude didn't come across as the most poor man version of fucking um, uh, Michael Madsen that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Oh, God. Yep. To the bandana yeah. down. Dude. And then, so and I got to bring this up because this is one of my favorite parts in the whole movie. So they go undercover and they, they find their way to where these, you know, the death ring is to get involved in this, this, the fighting tournaments and stuff. And, and the guy's like, what should we call you two? And Gary Daniels kind of like, he's like, not like, you know, like does the elbow thing, like watch this. And he turns over, he's like the hammer and the pussy cat. And the dude they're telling to, who, by the way, is one of my favorite characters in the movie, who is the eye patch guy, who's like the wrangler yeah. of the fighters, basically. And he's like, after he's like in the pussycat, he's like, oh, they're going to love that. We're just going to call you Alley Cat. And he's like, whatever, man. Like, like when he's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, cat. watch this. The hammer. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was true. The hammer and the pussycat. Okay. And then, okay. And I, okay. Got to throw this in too. So they add in this weird thing of fucking Chad McQueen's family. Like his, like, and it kills me the way that they, 
That's where the acting they is the worst. They did this in the in the most haphazard, stupid way possible. Where like shit's going on, and then all of a sudden he's playing God knows what, but it's supposed to be Super Nintendo, and his wife is just like, "You can't be doing this." Like it's the like it looks like they have a terrible relationship. Then the dude gets involved with like one of the the servers, like the the bartender chicks at this place. And it's like you have a fucking family that you clearly don't care about because you're trying to get in this chick's pants. And then they use the plot device. OK, well, we're going to kill his wife. <laughs> like, and then he, he's like, oh, <laughs> son of a bitch. Like, it's like you didn't give a fuck about your wife the whole movie until she gets killed. And then you're like, oh, I can't believe you did this to my wife that I'm actively trying to cheat on during the course of being an undercover cop. Like it's it's hilarious. Yeah, in the in the hell zone and death. And ring, dude, you know, because that's that's of course I don't know. Did we run by the fact that the uh, yeah? Because you, you it was in the initial synopsis that these staged lethal no holds barred matches in the death ring is like the whole you know foundation of the plot. Yep, with them going undercover fighting in the death. Dude, ring. and okay, because you know these uh these movies aren't known for how brilliant they are in their their storylines but so they go to this thing and it's like okay death matches right i get it it's like in a cage and shit like that guys have weapons but then for no apparent reason they just have non-lethal fights it's like wait a minute why is this a thing and then and you know the the ultimate warrior swordsman character is the main guy he's the bolo young of blood sport like the he's the big boss okay and you know, they showed like Chad McQueen's character, as soon as he gets involved in the shit, he does okay, but he gets the shit kicked out of him. And Gary Daniels is like, yeah, I'm going to show you how it's done. And he beats the shit out of everybody. And then he goes out to have a non-lethal fight that they make a lethal fight and they change his opponent to the swordsman. And this is something I did not remember. Okay. So, I remember Gary Daniels kind of being the lead character here. And I, this is my line of thinking. I remember this movie, Gary Daniels is the good dude and his partner's the dude that the warrior fucking decapitates. I remembered it the complete opposite wrong way. So I was kind of shocked when Gary Daniels gets decapitated by the warrior in this one. And I'm like, Oh man, they fucking made McQueen the main dude. This is fucking stupid. But he actually does a pretty good job considering what they need him to do, kind of playing the hero, because once his wife is killed, he basically wants to avenge her death, avenge his partner's death, and win the tournament and leave with the fucking bartender chick. So that's kind of the way that they were going with this. But dude, the, now the fighting, when they get to the fights and shit, it's a, it drags, like which is weird, because it probably should be the most exciting part of the movie. But besides that... I don't have a whole lot bad to say about this one. I ended up enjoying it way more than I thought I would. As we always say, entertaining, man. It was definitely that. And uh, yeah, I mean, that brings up, got to shout out one of my highlights, which I'm sure you'll you'll agree. And I'll give a shout out to the actor because he wasn't in it. Uh, He was just the voice. Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. But the fucking... Yeah, he was the ring announcer that like narrated and commentated 
the matches, but sounded yep. sounded like a strip club yep. announcer the whole time. And when um, and that's where we got the he doesn't call him the swordsman, the he calls swords him the swords man. man. So that's where <laughs> and, and I got that, and it's and it's hilarious. And when he decapitates uh, Gary Daniels, you know he's like, "And your winner, the swordsman by decapitation." But but he made it too, like yeah. half the shit he was saying, and he helps you at least understand it too, as far as a an actual like positive plot device, because he'll he'll announce like yep. this is a non lethal match. Yeah, that's the, and all and that dude, shit. You know too. something that he said in this that I was really kind of shocked by, and I'm sure as a wrestling fan and somebody that's followed like fighting sports, you you understand this. If there's you know there's a uh, Michael Buffer who's a famous announcer, and everybody knows his saying is. Let's get ready to rumble. And there's been instances, he gets paid $50,000 to announce that, okay? And he has sued people for using that phrase because he has it copywritten. But I'll be damned if in this movie, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs doesn't do the let's get ready to rumble. And it must have just fallen under the radar. But I was going to say, I I was was like, oh, shit, I'm shocked that they did (laughs) firepower. You know, it kind of took me by surprise. And dude, now, as we do here on the show, there's always the unintentional comedy. And this is one thing that made me laugh immediately and then almost immediately cringe at because I realized what he was saying. So whenever the swordsman gets broken out of jail, Uh, There's a chase scene involving the two main character police and, you know, like this bus, I guess, would be the best way to explain it. But like they're chasing them. And it's like you hear Gary Daniels at one point. He's like, don't worry, fellas. It's getting a little tight in here. She's just like a virgin during her first date. And I'm laughing. And then I'm like, oh, that was like basically him saying something about a 12 year old girl. Like, which is like, yeah, like, again, as we always no, say, could you get away with that now? <laughs> but, dude, there's so much funny shit. And, like, dude, it's really bizarre, too, at how good the chemistry of the actors were in this movie, considering that none of them are really particularly good actors. It works. Like, the characters don't feel forced and weird. Like, they all feel oddly authentic. And it it really kind of lends itself to, like, this movie's low budget. It's probably not being made by the most talented people. But for whatever reason, the ultimate product is pretty solid on this one. I mean, dude, I would easily say this is one of the better movies we've ever watched on Thursday Night Prime. Well, you know what I think it is, is just the creative mm-hmm. aspect of it. Where uh, again we've been we've been through the storyline and synopsis, so I don't want to like, go through it again. But just to break it down, like bullet point wise, it's like it's the near future. Crime has risen to an exponential rate. There's these hell zones ruled by street gangs. Then like the one is controlled by the mastermind. He's having these freaking death ring fights. The cops go in undercover. It's all trying to expose an alleged black market involving the sale of counterfeit AIDS vaccines. So when you have that all on paper, just trying to pull that off as a film, I think is what helped this whole thing just come together. And like you said, and it's the main thing I love. It's like what I try to do doing our independent films when when you're dealing with a shoestring budget is at least – creating your own world to take people in and that's what this did dude it's it's completely its own unique original fucking world 
that, that is Absolutely, this movie firepower. So as we do here on the show, the Jay, do you have a uh, tagline for us? We got a couple of them for firepower. Don't fuck around. Hey, eel. So the, the main one is firepower. You can enter the hell zone, but you can never leave it. And then uh, there's one, probably a different promotional poster or something. That's, that's the a mind blowing. That's the one that hell. I saw. And Fire I was like, power. okay, that's a, that's a pretty good one. So uh, <laughs> as we do here on the show, we like to do the five star rating scale. So the J, what are you giving five firepower this week? I go firepower. Okay. A nice I went with three, three and a half on this one. I definitely enjoyed this movie, got a kick out of it. And I think that uh, ultimately this is the antithesis of what this segment is about. These specific types of movies, specifically this one. It just really, yeah, pun intended. Exactly. So, ultimately. and it's funny because this movie is, they even used warrior. Well, like they didn't give him a ton of lines. Like he, he's just there to look yeah. big and imposing. And I thought it worked out amazingly. The swords, man, the swords, so, man, that is firepower from 1993 right here on Thursday night. Prime, the most action packed segment in weekly podcasting. So we have to take our final commercial break. When we come back, we're going to do the show wrap up and talk a little goofs. Sound good to Jay. Perfect. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast. What would dad do? Suppose dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family, even your little brother? Check. Welcome to dad's. Well, that's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. Of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people love they hang out with. So, Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot, too. Check us out on the web at dadspub.com. Give us a call at area code 412-856-5666, located at 4320 Northern Pike, Monroeville, and 1050 Brayton Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA. That's Dad's. And we're back and we're down here at the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob, the last drive-in uh, for the last week of the last drive-in. Uh, first up, we're going to take it all the way back to 1960. This is probably the oldest movie that we've spoken about on, uh, you know, the last drive-in segment here that we do. Uh, sure. This is from 1960. This is directed by the legendary Roger Corman. And it's a movie that I think most people will recognize in one way, shape, or form because it's been public domain forever. And it is The Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Seymour works in a skid row floor shop and is in love with his beautiful co-worker, Audrey. He creates a new plant that not only talks, but can survive or cannot survive without human flesh and blood. Um, it's also probably mostly recognized by most people as the 80s remake that they did with Rick Moranis uh, playing Seymour. After uh, they turned it one, into a musical. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, but this is starring Jonathan Hayes with Jackie Joseph. Uh, Dick Miller is in this because even in 1960, Dick Miller was in everything. He's still a character uh, actor. Also, Jack Nicholson shows up in this. Yeah. Because Jack Nicholson is from the Roger Corman school. And the cool thing about this episode of The Last Drive-In, it is all dedicated to Roger Corman. He was even on here as a guest. That was my highlight. Um, me too, because I'll be honest with you, when they first announced their first title, I kind of groaned because I'm not the biggest fan of the Little Shop of Horrors. I've never been. And I knew that Roger Corman was going to be on, and I could think of like 50 better movies that I'd rather see from Roger Corman, like some of the Poe stuff they could have did with Vincent Price and stuff, um, you know, or even The Trip, you know, with Jack Nicholson. But they went with this one. I guess I kind of see why, because this is kind of like an exercise in how to make a movie with nothing. Um, and it's kind of the movie that put Roger Corman on the map as far as making movies for himself, because, you know, he was in the Hollywood system, uh, kind of didn't like the fact that there was too much involvement of everybody in making a movie. He just wanted to make movies. So he had the opportunity to get a studio, which he did. And he just started pumping them out left and right. He was financially successful even to this day on the stuff that he produces. Um, so well, it's a pretty legendary career. But the thing that is he's probably most well known for is because Roger Corman's films and his studio became like a breeding ground for some of the greatest actors, directors and film people of all kinds that have ever done work in the film industry. Including Scorsese and Coppola, for crying out loud. And like you said, Jack Nicholson, as far as acting and goes, and the, the list goes on and on. And that's just a few people. I mean, James exactly. Cameron is from that school. Joe, uh, Joe Bob was rattling off the one point towards the end. It's just insane yeah. how many people I mean, came from Corman. We would literally need to do a segment on this to name everybody. It's that. I was going to mention that one. Yeah. That's a podcast segment for another day is a, a Corman retrospective. Cause he's a hero of mine. He's literally Absolutely. the, yeah, literally the most successful independent film producer of all time. Uh, as, as Joe Bob goes to mention, not to get too far out of chronological order, but just while I'm thinking about it, Hey, you know, just a, a tidbit I thought that was really cool is that one of the films that he did and I, I it escapes me off the top of my head but it didn't it was like one of his few films that didn't make any money and mm. years years later it was picked up by a British uh, company and, and put out again and then it ended up going in the green so Joe Bob mentions to him and he's like yeah you're back to being undefeated every single one of your pictures made money you know the one that didn't it took 50 years but it ended up making money. You're still undefeated. So that was really cool. Um, which brings up the coolest aspect of this original Little Shop of Horrors to me, hey, you know, which I thought was interesting because I never knew this about it. It was basically made uh, through a bet where oh, basically yeah. Corman was challenged to make a feature film as quick as he could. And he made this movie, a feature film, The Little Shop of Horrors in 1960s in two days. And it's still a record. Yeah. The movie that you were talking about, by the way, is a 1962 drama called The Intruder. The Intruder. Um, there you go. Yes. It, that is the only movie that has never made a profit that he made. Um, this is, and the reason why he brings it up is because he decided that he was going to make a movie that had a political stance to it. Exactly. And kind of, kind of a message and something that he thought was important. Um, and he has also pretty much been known for a long, long time as a very popular liberal. 
I know we don't get into politics a whole lot here on the show, but this is just the gist of Roger Corman. Um, Once that movie didn't make money, he had realized what I like to call the H.G. Lewis method of filmmaking. And that is, it doesn't need to be good. It doesn't need to have stars. It doesn't need to have a message. It doesn't need to have a, a, you know, this, that, and the third. It only needs to be one thing. Entertaining. That is the key. That's where we, that's Roger the school Corman, we come from. Hey, you know, and I thought of you he, when he was talking about that, because you always say, give me what you're preaching. And he talks about that. He's like, if I'm going to give you a sci-fi movie, I'm going to give you sci-fi. If I'm going to give yes. you a horror movie, I'm going to give you horror. Yes. And dude, I'm going to talk about it more with the second feature, Humanoids from the Deep. But it's like Corman was a genius of getting you into the theater uh, with you thinking it's going to be something. And then not only would he deliver on what that thing is, but something like Humanoids from the Deep over delivers. And you're like, holy fuck, this movie's awesome because it didn't just give you what you wanted. It gave you even more. More. That's the key. You always like Corman was good at like, you know, they always say leave them waiting for more. Corman was like, fuck that. I'm going to give them everything they want and more so they will come back. I'm not leaving them hungry. I'm leaving them knowing where they can get a good meal again. That's where he was coming from. And it worked. It works for me. Every time I see a Corman thing, I'm like, well, it's going to be entertaining. I'm going to check it out. And dude, when you look at his overall just perspective of everything that he did, okay? And I'm not just talking about the movies that he directed. I'm also talking about the stuff he produced. This is a guy that produced horror movies. He produced sci-fi movies. He produced drive-in movies. He would produce fad movies like Rock and Roll High School, like, you know, when or, you know, like stuff like that would come out through the years and take on a fad. Like Roller Boogie isn't his, but that's a good example of it. Like right. disco and roller skating was a thing. They made a bunch of fucking movies about it. I'm sure it's escaping me, but Corman probably made one of those as well. Like anytime there was a fad or skateboarding or something, they would incorporate that kind of stuff in their movies because it would get people out. Because you have to remember, nowadays, it's super easy for all of us. Like if you want to just watch something that involves things you like, you could just go on YouTube and do that. That didn't exist back then. So if you wanted to see things you liked, you had to find movies about it or read books and magazines and seek out that shit any way you can. And that's how people used to consume the entertainment. And he was somebody there willing to take your money because he knew your money was in your hand and you were willing to give it up for that thing that you liked. So anyway, coming full circle here, back to the movie at hand, The Little Shop of Horrors. Now, as you said, the Jay kind of made this movie on a bet. So when we're talking this movie, it is a an achievement as far as making a money, making a movie for little to no money. Um, for me, it's not really much of an achievement other than that. It's kind of an interesting little story. Like it's a creative, you know, like kind of clever little story. Yeah, with the plant. Yep. Exactly. Um, but it really is kind of just boring and meandering. And it's a movie that's only 72 minutes. Um, I've never been a big fan of this one. It just, I don't really, there's nothing about the story that makes me like it. Um, it, It's not a serious horror movie. There is comedic elements in it. It's, I guess by the time I saw this movie, uh, the the remake had been out at that point. Um, So it was just kind of like, okay, it's a movie from 1960. I get it. 
like that's pretty much it like and not to disparage anything from 1960 it's just made it was made for an audience that was generations before i was born so it doesn't work for me like it worked for a lot of other people that's the only reason I had seen it before Hate You because I was a big fan of the 80s version. And when I found out it was kind of like a remake, reboot, whatever the hell you want to call it, I wanted to check out the original, which I would always do. I did that with The Thing as well. And uh, so this is like the second time I was revisiting it. I think I think it would be mer- worth mentioning, too. I believe there's a color version of this and Shutter showed the black and white. Yeah, because I guess they wanted to show the original, which, I, yeah. you know, as a cinephile, I have no difference with it but i think initially i saw the the black and white version as well so at this point i've never seen the color version but dude, but yeah my uh, it's it's weird here's something people might not realize roger corman made another movie in 1959 called a bucket of blood that's actually pretty good this is kind of like a weirdo remake right of that um, and I, I've always thought this, a bucket of blood is significantly better to me in pretty much every capacity um, than this is. So I thought that this was a strange choice for it. Um, there's, it's, it's pretty thin of a movie. There's not a whole lot. The one thing that I will say, and th- this is pretty wild to, to see this in 1960. He wasn't a seasoned actor then, obviously. He was just getting started. But like, dude, Jack Nicholson still manages to steal every scene that he's in. in the movie. So <laughs> yeah. it's he, he at least knew that. So like you could tell and, and it shows you why Corman would come to use him a lot. Like when you seen him early on, it's like there's something about this dude. So like I can imagine people that saw him in 1960 and then he became a giant star. They were probably like, I figured that out when I seen him in the Corman shit back in the day. Like I knew this dude was going to be a major actor. And. For those that might be unaware, he plays Wilbur Force, who's the guy that goes to the dentist that loves pain. Yes. And like the dentist just can't seem to, to hurt him no matter how much he's torturing him. And then, of course, uh, famously in the, the reboot mu- musical, the dentist was played by Steve Martin and the Wilbur Force character was, of course, Bill Murray, which was classic. Those scenes. Yep. So yeah. It all goes together. And it's weird because and, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it. So like this is considered like a schlocky little genre movie. Okay. And in the eighties, whenever they remade it, that was perfect canon for comedy at the time. Like go back and take something from the schlocky sixties and make it with a lot of the current comedians and people that are making movies. Cause Bill Murray and Steve Martin and even Rick Moranis, they're really good for that type of stuff. That's their era of stuff. So they understand the material and they know how to play it but not play it to the point where it ruins the movie. They know what they're making. They understand why it's funny. And honestly, that time period in the eighties was perfect for that kind of stuff. So let me throw this at you. Hey, yeah. So pulling up my references as we do to have here on the show and talk things over, I stumbled upon this through IMDb and I have heard nothing about it until a handful of minutes ago. And that is, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. Another, uh, modernization and reboot of Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I've heard about it, and I have little to no interest in it. It's because it, it's just let me like it's just going to be CGI and goofy shit. And yeah, I just don't, and I don't know. Well, I was going to mention too. It is rumored. I'm reading that now too, so it could just be complete bullshit. But did you want to hear the top build cast as of now? Sure. Scarlett Johansson is Audrey. She Chris Evans, 
I don't think so. Chris Evans is Oren Scrivello. Uh, nope. Taron Edgerton is Seymour. And Billy Porter mm-hmm. is Audrey too. Yeah, there's no way that that's going to happen. I, I'm telling you right now, I don't believe that that movie is going to happen in the least, especially because you're talking about stars that now have kind of transitioned into being major players on you know Marvel movies and stuff like that. So that stuff's going to get the priority. Plus, Scarjo no is Prego. I just heard that Scarjo is Prego. So yeah, so she ain't making that movie anytime soon. So it just kind of is what it is. But <laughs> I just wanted to throw that at you because yeah, I just saw that. So, but yeah, you know, Little Shop of Horrors. I get why they show it, and I get why people you know really like it and stuff like that. I've never been you know the biggest fan of it. It just kind of is what it is. I give it the credit that it deserves. You know, I, I believe you know. But it just doesn't naturally, and I hate using this as a term, it just doesn't hold up for me. Um, it, it doesn't offer that much as far as what I'm looking for when I watch this kind of stuff. And like I said, Corman, they could have showed something better uh, for him. So the Jade, we got a tagline for this bad boy. Yeah, the tagline for the 1960 Little Shop of Horrors is the flowers that kill in the spring, tra-la. Hey, yo. There you go. So let's move right along here. Uh, do you want to rate it? Ratings. Yes. Okay. I mean. My bad. Uh, so what are you doing on a five-star rating scale for this one, the J? I'll go two. Yep. That's pretty much what I have it at as well. Two stars. Um, like I said, doesn't really hold up through the time. I get why it's kind of, you know, a monumental film in the regards of what it means to, to movie makers and independent filmmaking. But the movie itself isn't really a whole lot to write home about. So we're going to move up to 1980 and we're going to be talking about humanoids from the deep. Now, I didn't know this uh, before we get into it. The Jay, had you seen this before? No. Great. This is awesome. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it's very fun. Talk about Corman's word right there. Hey, you know, entertaining for sure. And this is the perfect movie to bring up that point, the Jay, because this movie was made by Barbara Peters. Okay. Uh, she had made a few other things for Roger Corman. She was from that school. She would go on to to make a whole bunch of other, you know, film-related stuff, uh, not as a director. So she would kind of move into the more technical side and work on TV and stuff too. But she was very unhappy with the finished product of the movie because there were a lot of scenes of nudity and gore that she never filmed. Uh, because when Roger Corman saw the product be turned in, and if it did not have a certain quotient of both, which was pretty much needed at the time to draw money at the drive-ins, um, he would have somebody go out from the, the, you know, the second team and film all that shit. And this is something that I could say about this movie. It makes the movie significantly better. And there's a reason for that. So, and again, this is another Corman classic and he's making a creature feature uh, where there's a bunch of monsters but only had uh, Rob Bottin did the effects, by the way, and only had his money to do one full creature. And this is the guy that made the thing. So he is a, about a year out before he goes and does that. Before um, his Coke so, problem. Well, no, he probably had it on this one, too. That's where it was starting. Yeah, if it wasn't just full blast from the moment he got involved with shit because he's a super talented guy. Um, so after a new cannery introduces scientifically augmented salmon to a seaside town in the Pacific Northwest, a species of mysterious mu- mutated sea creatures begins killing the men and raping the women. 
And yep, there is a full-on scene of fucking sea creature rape in this movie. Um, There's a bunch of fucking gore and really gross shit. Um, And this movie fucking rules because of all this stuff, man. Yeah. The the creatures are gross. Um, It has a really good cast. So you got Doug McClure, you have Ann Turkle, you got Vic Morrow, man. And like, that's the thing. Fuck. Watching this movie reminded me of how awesome fucking Vic Morrow was from yeah. shit like this to the bad news bears. If Vic Morrow was in it, he, his character was going to have a fucking major, uh, uh, what do you want to say? Effect on the, the movie you're watching, whether he's, a, if he's an asshole, uh, the, the thing that's kind of cool. Yeah, this he's movie, a scene stealer. He, he's a jack off the whole movie, but like when the time comes for him to do the right thing, like he does it like it's just a cool. He was such a good fucking actor, man. It's a shame he died in one of the most controversial Hollywood deaths of all time uh, when he died on uh, Twilight Zone, the movie and was killed by a helicopter with two children. Yeah, um, that was terrible. That that was um, Landis, right? Absolutely. It pretty yeah. much almost ruined his career. Um, it kind of, it kind of did in a way, even though he did get a lot of work after that. Um, but dude, this is a classic example to me of Corman now, not directing. This is a Corman production. So he has one of his underlings, Barbara Peters, somebody that's made several movies for him, pick up this movie. And then you get Vic Morrow, you get, uh, Ann Turkle, who was a model at the time and she was a pretty well-known person. So it's a good you know, to play the damsel in distress kind of thing. But instead, they had her play a doctor. So scientist. uh, Yeah, a scientist, a doctor, what have you, that kind of a deal. Um, But the thing is, now, this movie is kind of a mess as far as the, you know, the plot devices and everything in it. But when it comes to the creatures and the final scene of this movie, where they essentially start attacking a fair. It it is just fucking bonkers, dude. And it kind of relates me back to something you brought up. You brought up John Landis. If you ever watch American Werewolf in London, which I know you've seen the J, the best scene in that movie is when the werewolf busts out of the fucking movie theater and and it's just utter chaos. That's kind of what this scene is in this movie. And I'm not saying it's the same exact thing. It's just the sheer unbridled chaos of, creatures attacking and people freaking the fuck out and dude it pays off man it's so good and the movie's good leading up to that point too but that's when just everything just fucking blows up everywhere and it really gets good this movie's a lot of fucking fun let me just shout out right away as well hey you know that anthony pena's character has one of the better names ever <laughs> johnny, johnny eagle, eagle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which was great. But but yeah, it was, it was just a really fun uh, movie. And it's one, you know, again, we'll go back to the theme of, uh, again, what you always promote with films and that Corman is a huge proponent of. And that is the fact that you're, you're going to watch an 80s B-level creature feature. Yes. So if, if you're, you know, if it's that, like we always say, if you're going in this expecting, you know, some classic horror film that's going to flip the genre on its ears, this is not that film. But if it's you go in expecting a goofy, violent, full frontal female nudity creature feature, then you're going to have a lot of fun. And, and let me let me shout this out, too, just real quick, because uh, I actually brought this up earlier on in this podcast when we were talking about the movies we watched 10 times. 
And okay. I always mention Braveheart. And one of the biggest things about Braveheart is the soundtrack that I love. And okay. that was actually composed by James Horner, who is the composer of Humanoids from the Deep, which I learned. And mm-hmm. uh, that's another notch on Corman's belt as far as, uh, you know, huge Hollywood people and their careers because he actually won an Oscar for Titanic. And James Horner, weirdly going with um, with with Vic Morrow, died in a plane crash in 2015, tragically. Yeah. So throw uh, that tidbits at you. Hey, y'all. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man, just to think about, like, you know, some of these movies, too, like, they everything's not as glossy. And I guess you could say the same thing for the people that used to be in movies, too. Like, you know, you hear about, like, Oliver Reed and like the old fucking style, like movie stars, the guys like to get drunk and fight and shit, you know, like that kind of thing. Kind of like the characters that they display in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Quentin Tarantino, like, you know, the man's man fucking actors and kind of the, you know, like the eccentric character actor people and, and stuff like that. And, and I think these guys kind of fall into that grouping, you know what I mean? And there's so many of these guys, like, Dude, I was lucky not to completely deviate. It just reminded me of it. So years ago, I was at Cinema Wasteland uh, convention in Ohio. It's a movie convention type thing. And they have actors and stuff. And I saw a panel with Tom Atkins. And you know all the stuff that Tom Atkins is in. And of course, they're talking about all that stuff. But here's a movie that I don't know how familiar you're with, the Jay. So you might, this, this might show you some cool stuff that you weren't aware of. Have you ever heard of the Ninth Configuration? No. Okay. So the ninth configuration, uh, the reason why this is such a big deal to begin with, it's it's a movie from 1980. It was directed by William Peter Blatty uh, from Exorcist fame. Okay, now this movie has a major cast of characters. We're talking Stacy Keach is in it, Scott Wilson's in it, Neville Brand is in this movie, Joe Spinell is in this movie, Robert Loggia is in the movie, Alejandro Ray is in the movie. Tom Atkins is in the movie. Blatty's in the movie. Richard Lynch is in the movie. Jason Miller, the priest from The Exorcist, is in the movie. And Tom Atkins essentially told us that they went, this movie was filmed somewhere really weird, like Romania or something like that. So they were kind of stuck somewhere strange for a long period of time. And it was, he was telling us stories, everything of like guys that were completely shit faced on set. Uh, Neville Brand, I think at one point just disappeared and they had to go find him. And he wasn't like, they didn't send the PAs like me and fucking, you know, Jason Miller had to go find him and shit. And Jason Miller liked to drink and fight and shit. And they're in a country <laughs> where like you could go to the fucking gulag for yelling at a cop, let alone getting hammered and beating the shit out of somebody. So like, you know, you would have these crazy movies that like, it's amazing what the productions would have put up with to keep the actors on them because the actors were basically out of control. Joe Spinell's in here too, by the way, in 1980, the same year fucking Maniac came out. I doubt he was a yeah, well-adjusted man. Yeah, like this, this is wild shit over here. And these are the kind of character actors that make up those kind of people and nothing disparaging against them. Sometimes really good character actors from years ago were kind of troubled people. They could play anything. So they're not really comfortable in their own skin. They're more comfortable being, you know, a a pilot and then a cop and then a fucking murderer and then a gangster. You know what I mean? Anything but themselves. Exactly. Exactly. So you hear a lot of these stories and stuff. And that to me is one of the more interesting things in Hollywood. 
uh, is just like the character actor portrayals. Like we always talked about that. Like, you know, they're stars and everything. And that's one thing. But like, to me, the character actors are always the most interesting because they, they play in fucking scenes with these big stars and they don't allow the scenery to be chewed up around them. They hold their own. And Vic Morrow's yeah. a great example of those type of guys. That's why I was kind of, you know, went off on the tangent. Yeah. It was but, worth uh, on the rent, worth the rant. Hey, yo. but thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, humanoids of the deep man, really yeah. fun flick, uh, cool looking monsters. So even without the, uh, the money behind it, you could tell Rob O'Teen was going to probably go on to be a major player. And he probably would have continued to be the major player uh, without his battles with, you know, addiction and things like that. But nonetheless, man, you, you could say whatever you want about him, but you can't say that he stunk because everything that guy did was pretty much tremendous and it's on display here. Yeah, to this film too, a, a big player um, kind of offhand was the atmosphere. And again, we've talked about it in past reviews of certain movies like that, that the quote unquote sleepy seaside town. Like I love yep. movies like that with the atmosphere, like the fishing town stuff. Yep. So like, yeah, that, that just added to like it. That too. That's, that's another yeah. one. It just, it, dude, they were so much better. The fog even. Yeah. Like they used to make a lot of those movies and they just don't really make them anymore, which is pretty weird. If you come to, because yeah. like in growing up and shit, that was like, we see movies like that all the time, you know, but yeah, they really nailed that stuff. You know, it, the, it's funny too. Cause I see a lot of the, I, I don't even know if this is true, but I feel like a lot of the same places that they shot this movie, they shot a lot of the shit that they did for Piranha, the original Piranha. Oh like yeah. They set. talked about Piranha. So it's like, and that's a James Cameron movie again from the world of Corman. So, you know, he he's really put some of the best, uh, people into Hollywood that, that Hollywood's ever seen through the years. Not to say every one of them is from Corman, but some of the best of all time certainly are. So the J, what do we got for a tagline for this bad boy? So the tagline for humanoids from the deep, they're not human, but they hunt human women, not for killing, for mating. Hmm. I found another one here. It says from the ocean depths, they strike to terrorize, to mate and to kill. So both <laughs> mating and killing just yeah, like yeah. our lives. Hey, Ed fucking and killing fucking and killing. That's the theme of human. Well, we're we're like, we're, we're like fucking and fighting. We don't kill. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, so on the five star scale for me, this one gets three and a half. Where are you at the J solid three for humanoids, but yeah, really enjoyed it. Fun. Nice solid ending to, to the season of the last drive-in. I do know that there is a special coming up. Um, I don't know exactly when. Uh, we'll see whenever that gets posted. We'll obviously take a look at it because whenever the last drive-in is open, me and the J tend to like to head on down. So we hope yeah, you we guys love hanging out with the drive-in. Exactly. So we hope you guys enjoyed that segment. We are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to do a half-season breakdown of the first part of Dark Side of the Ring. So we'll be back, guys, right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody, it's your boy, The J, from the What's Real Podcast, here to represent Churchill Pictures. Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damian Ofusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012, now available on YouTube and Amazon Prime. The Pittsburgh-based crime drama was made with a $10,000 budget as family and friends produced locations and other resources to help make the film. 
Through the years, Churchill Pictures have put together a number of short films and comedy sketches, as well as many documentaries. In 2016, Bajoris and Fusca embarked on another feature film project, The Unsung, a production that united a group of talented filmmakers who delivered the project on time and under budget. The Unsung is also now available on Walmart.com for a hard copy DVD or streaming on Vimeo.com or Amazon Prime. Currently in the film festival circuit for preparation is their next big project, a part of a documentary story of a territory wrestling league in the mid-1980s entitled The National Wrestling League. Check out all of this and more at churchillpictures.com today. That's churchillpictures.com and picture the possibilities. And we're back here on the show, and it's time for us to take a look at uh, the Monster Squad documentary, Wolfman's Got Nards, directed by star of the Monster Squad, Andre Gower. Uh, This is a documentary that essentially explores the power of the cult film told through the lens of the Monster Squad and the impact it has had on fans, cast, crew, and the industry. And if you guys have listened to the show, you probably already understand our love and admiration Uh, for the Monster Squad. But just to give you a quick idea uh, of what we're dealing with here, so this documentary, there's a lot of people in it. And I'm talking about Adam Goldberg, creator of the ABC TV show The Goldbergs, Seth Green, Shane Black, writer of Lethal Weapon, and many, many other things, Heather Langenkamp, Zach Galligan, uh, Christina Klebe from the Halloween series, director Adam Green, Duncan Rieger from the film itself, including Andre Gower, Tom Woodruff Jr., special effects artist, director Chuck Russell, Fred Decker himself, Ryan Lambert, pretty much everybody that you could possibly want to talk to um, from the movie itself, minus one person. We'll get into that as well. And uh, many, many other reviewers and, and horror writers and authors and things like that as well. Um you get a 91-minute documentary that's essentially a love letter to the Monster Squad, written and directed by the people who are in the movie. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. It's a it's a really nice walk down memory memory lane that isn't just rewatching the movie, which is really nice. I could just say on my end, dude, it inspired me so much as a kid that I started like my own little take on the monster squad with my friends called the spying kids. Okay. And yes, people that was way before Robert Rodriguez's spy kids, which is different. <laughs> ever. Anyway, we had the ING, but that was our little group even back then the spying kids, but that was inspired from the monster squad. And I remember just always trying to repeat their adventures, like in, with our imagination. Cause we were like pretty little kids when this came out. It's, it's not like we were uh teenagers yet because it, it came out what 87 yeah, so, yeah we're like you know eight nine years old by the time we saw it maybe maybe 10 at the most so uh yeah it, it fueled my imagination imagination a lot and just a quick uh story to throw in at the beginning because we did talk about it on a past podcast uh but just to rehash because i'll let you know the the end results i don't even think i told you but i had mentioned okay. there was uh, a time in sec- second grade when there was some sort of like promotional thing and they were giving out movie posters and everybody in the second grade class got to pick uh, between like three movie posters and they were like random goofy movies. I can't even remember, 
But in my head, for some reason, this is when I first got huge on the Monster Squad. So that tells the age there. I remember it was second grade. I was like, and I never got like this. I was like fighting and crying with my teacher because I wanted a Monster Squad poster. And she's like, Jared, they don't, that's not an option. Like, what are you, what are you, talking, <laughs> what is this? Well, hey, Ed, I bring it up. And I just wanted to say that personal take on, on the Monster Squad because of how much I love it. I have since purchased the Monster Squad poster. So, um, second grade Jared that's crying, fighting and screaming can be proud of adult Jared. We, we have it, bud. So I'm going to put that in my gym eventually. Did you get a real one or did you get like a reprint? I got a reprint. I wish I could afford the real one. I know you have the the actual one. Yeah. I have the real one. Yeah. That's dude. I'm telling you, man, one thing that paid off for me is as a interesting side note here, uh, in like 20, 12 2013 um i started getting really heavy into movie poster collecting like original movie posters and uh i got really lucky with what prices were online and some of the resources i found life is timing Um, man you had the timing on it and i was able to amass an entire collection so like i'm pretty happy and that's not something that like you know like through the years like you collect stuff you throw stuff away you lose stuff you sell stuff you know whatever the case may be i've never sold off any of that stuff i still have all of it so Smart. i'm very very happy that i've been able to do that i have no idea if it's going to ever lead to anything but it's just nice to have the collection in and of itself because it's a lot of stuff that was like you said a big influence on me uh, when I was a kid. So it's nice to even go back and look. And one of the things I'm looking forward to, and I know this is weird, but I'm going to be moving probably within the next few months. And that's always a horrible experience. I, I think, you know, oh, it's the worst. it sucks. Uh, but the one good thing is, is I'm going to be able to like individually go through all my stuff and see what I have and like actually get to see it for the first time. Yeah, we, we talked about that for me. I did that not too long ago. And like, I was texting you the whole day because it was that much fun. Mm-hmm. So that would be great. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing that, even though it's going to be a shitload of work. Uh, but nonetheless, but anyway, back to the uh, documentary itself. Um, I was really impressed with the quality of the documentary. Um, they had a lot of like comic book and artwork stuff that they interspliced in the, in this that I thought was really well done and really good. Yeah, they included like, fans and fan interviews, which was cool. Yeah, it's like the kind of remember how we talked last week whenever we were talking about the uh, creep show Halloween special and we were both kind of saying how the animation wasn't up to par. Um, this is something that I expected to have like mediocre animation in it, and I was actually impressed with it because it was really good. Yeah. Um, but you could tell this was a labor of love. And the one thing that I really enjoyed it because I've actually had the opportunity to meet Andre Gower a couple times, and he's a super, super nice guy. Um, so seeing them going and like visiting sick fans and shit was really cool. Yeah, it was nice. Um, and one of the things I wanted to say in this movie is uh, Ryan Lambert, who plays like the cool kid, okay, in the movie. I had no idea, first up, how he says like, you know, I did this movie and it really didn't do anything. And for the longest time, like I didn't want anything to do with it. I was like, I felt like it was a failure. I didn't want to tell people about it or anything. And then he's like, and then I saw how much people love this movie. And he's like, I can't tell you how good that feels. Like dudes getting like visibly emotional. Um, And it's just, it was a really nice thing that I just, I guess I never realized from his perspective, how he felt about it. 
And I'll get into more about that in a moment with someone else. But I just thought that that, that was a perspective that I'd never really witnessed until watching this. Yeah, which correlates with Fred Decker's perspective, too, because he was similar. And he says in that getting kind of emotional that he honestly didn't did. It took him 20 years or more to realize the impact that Monster Squad have. So think about that, like something you think that, that was a failure to you or that you failed on in your past. And then this levity comes that it changed so many people's lives in a positive manner and stuff like such a cool feeling. Cause I, I could say that as an independent artist, man, you put your heart and soul into this stuff and people yeah. can just watch it and like rip on certain things from that person's perspective. They don't understand what goes into it, you know, cause me, me and you have a completely different take on this world. Hey, Ed, you know, not saying yeah. we're, we've been in Hollywood for 20 years, but uh, just completely with our specific experience on independent stuff. It's just the same kind of thing, if not more than like, you know, you're in Hollywood as a job making millions, you know, we're paying to play, we're grinding and crawling. So when you get that feedback where you've changed somebody's life in a positive way, or you can be that positive escape for somebody, which a lot of these fans said when they were going through tough times, because that's kind of like me, this is that type of movie. If I'm going through a tough time, like, dude, I just got to escape into the monster squad. I know that will make me feel better. Yeah. Absolutely, dude. And that's you kind of nailed it there because I was going to say the other person in this movie that gets pretty emotional about it is, is, of course, is Fred Decker. And I've always, always felt horrible for Fred Decker because number one, I think Fred Decker's amazing. He's a super talented guy. He's also made uh, Night of the Creeps. Um, and it was really weird because he made these two movies back to back. So he made Night of the Creeps and then he made Monster Squad. And these are movies that people in our generation, like, fucking love. Like, these movies, like, I can honestly say this, and I think you can too. We both had bootlegs of both of those movies before they were available. Oh, yeah. That, that's what, so, that, I was laughing at that. They show that. When it yeah. wasn't that, that one section where it wasn't available on DVD, when DVD was at the height of its popularity yes. and it was like yeah. one of the, it was one of the highest demanded ones. And the guy that was able to do the rights to the first slew, he was like, yeah, that was up there with my most successful releases of all time. Yeah. Michael Felcher, who's a guy I actually know pretty well. Um, and it's dude, it's just a movie that was really, really special to a large generation of people. And it essentially got forgotten because it didn't get a release after VHS. It did play a lot. And that was another thing I really liked about this. They showed um, how the Monster Squad playing on HBO was such a big deal. And they covered that in this, which I thought was great. That was a, a perspective Dude, that I wasn't expecting to see in this. So awesome. And that goes right into another personal experience of mine. As as we've said all the time, especially, I mean, we have a whole segment called Thursday Night Prime based off at HBO. Me and you say yep. all week, we were raised on HBO. Like we were lucky yep. enough to have parents like they, my dad just got HBO from like as soon as it was available. And I had it my, my whole life to this day, you know? And mm -hmm. I remember seeing... The because you know back in the day and on HBO they would have these like little they're basically twenty minute to half hour previews of a film yeah. that was coming out in a theater that they must have had it was a deal like a on. making of yeah that they would later have come on HBO that's like why they did yeah. it it's like they're trying to yep. promote their own movie that they're ultimately going to get on their service and I remember distinctly seeing the Monster Squad one and wanting to see it so bad but I like wasn't allowed or whatever back then mm -hmm. but I remember seeing that specific HBO 
like you said, like may it was, I think that's what it was called. Just making of, you know, monster yep. squad. And, um, I just wanted to shout out that that just came to me now, man. Pretty cool. Yeah, dude, it's uh, HBO was huge for me because it's like, I had it as a young kid and then we got rid of it. And I had a paper route when I was like 12, 13 years old. And like, that was the first thing I spent my money on. I was like, I want to get HBO. And then it just got to the point where they didn't make me pay for it anymore. They just kept it. Yeah. Um, but it's like, yeah, when I had the opportunity to like speak with my own money as a kid, like I wanted fucking HBO. Like I realized like, even at the time, like you could go rent movies, but like you were never going to get the, the mass amount of stuff that you would get from just getting HBO. So that's why I wanted to go that route. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, this movie was a big deal to so many people because of that. And just because of the era of the eighties in general. And one of the things they, they hit on in this movie that I think is really important is that the kids feel almost more authentic than any kids you can really think of in almost anything. And just because they feel like real kids. And that's something that they say in the documentary. And that's something that I think both of us would attest to because we've watched this movie as adults, but for the first time we saw it as kids and it didn't feel artificial. It felt legit. Yeah. They're always messing with each other. Of course, like, Oh, fat kid farted. No, I didn't. Like that's so our crew, you know, mugs farting and everybody fighting over who did it and stuff. And that just wasn't a typical common thing in, in film and still kind of really isn't, you know, talking about the whole modern era and PC and shit, you know, how kids really act. I guess there's certain obscure shows and stuff thinking off the top of my head that like HBO, but to your point, man, that was a big groundbreaking thing back then. And that's really Absolutely. what gives it the test of time, I feel, is the, the character's interaction throughout the whole storyline. And one of the great things, too, that I, I didn't even realize, uh, obviously, is uh, Adam Goldberg mentions in the show The Goldbergs, they always make references he wanted to, me to make he, he made me want to watch that show now. <laughs> Dude, you've never watched that show? <laughs> I've seen clips and stuff, and I'm sure I'd like it. It's just one Dude. I never, you know, never okay. got into. I don't watch it all the time, but I've seen episodes and there's an episode where the whole point of the show is uh, Jeff Garland, you know, for obviously from Curb Your Enthusiasm. He yep. plays the dad. Yeah. So he wants he's trying to bond with his son who loves wrestling and he gets some tickets and they go to WrestleMania four. But there's a whole thing about it where, like, the, it just doesn't work out, so they can't go. But, like, they had a good time hanging out together. And at the very end of the episode, they end up meeting Hulk Hogan. So it's like, it, just for our era alone, it's fun enough with nostalgia to make. And then, like, the show is funny. You know what I mean? It's just not something I watch all the time. But it is. I'm not saying that it's bad. It's a really good show. Yeah, so, I have to check it out. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was cool too. That uh, Adam Goldberg basically said that you know everybody says nards on the show all the time. It's yeah, kind of they show the, the monster squad. No, yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, that's and that's something that I wouldn't have known. Like I could have thought that, but I wouldn't have known until it was confirmed. So yeah. to get that confirmation in this was really cool. And and like I said, overall, man, this is just a really fun documentary like i would pretty much tell anybody that like hey watch monster squad and if you like it you got to watch wolfman's got nards because it'll kind of give you like if you've never seen it or it's not familiar to you you could watch the movie figure out if you like it or not and if you do really like it then it's like i could show you this thing showing you how this film has like a legacy about it that you didn't know because you never saw it until today 
that's the first thing my goofy speaking of collecting my goofy ass thought i'm like dude i i would buy this for, on dvd to add to the so would copy I. collection definitely 100 percent would because i i could see myself doing that where it's like you know i watch whenever i pull out the monster squad again it's like oh shit i'm gonna watch wolfman's got Yeah, watch too. the documentary like, first and get them getting the complete mood just to watch the whole ab- yeah movie again. you're right that's exactly how it tends to work after you've seen the movie then it's like you just watch it as something to get you all jacked up kind of like you know i'm sure you probably felt watching stuff like the crystal lake memory that's what i was or, saying you yeah, know you, like you're you like oh i want to watch, watch all, all this shit now yep. yeah it, it really does especially when you've already seen it it's kind of celebration gives you that new perspective and then plus two you get to watch it again for the first time maybe in a while with the perspectives that you got from the documentary so you might notice a few things or have a few things brought to your attention that you never really noticed before exactly yeah yeah i i I enjoyed it um wrapping up on on our take on this hey eel uh we wanted to bring up the actor that played horace um was it brett chalet uh, brett chalet uh, he passed away, and I hadn't realized that. So that I was knew a sad that he thing during this. But I didn't know any of the circumstances. Yeah, that was terrible. He ended up dying in in uh, hospital care when he was having issues from uh, was it diabetes or something? Yeah, he gave. Well, they gave him the wrong medication, and he had asthma, and he had an adverse uh, reaction to it. And this was after. Uh, him having pneumonia being sent home from the hospital on oxygen. That's right. And then yeah. the oxygen just wasn't, they didn't have it on. They correctly. released him so too like, early and then he had to go yeah. back and then they fucked something up in there and it caused him to die. That was and a really sad story. how the cast all reacts to the fact that they're incredibly sad about how he can't be here to witness all this stuff. And it's really weird, dude. And I thought about this after I watched it, but for a movie, that is so good that we immediately associate with like a great time in our life as kids or just rewatching it and reliving it. You know, like even us doing this on the show right now or how we've talked about monster squad on previous episodes. Um, there's like this inherent sadness about this movie and it's not anything on screen. It's the fact that Brett Chalet passed away too early. It's the fact, this is a fact that Monster Squad essentially ruined Fred Decker's career. He even says yeah, he that says it in here. there. Yep. And it's one of the reasons why I was so sad. I've always been so sad about the movie and with Fred Decker and stuff, because I feel like he never got his just due. And then to see Ryan Lambert's reaction of how like it failed. And I basically chalked it up as a big failure. And I didn't want to tell people about it. And then Man. like I rediscover it and it's like, Oh my God. Like it's, there's just this sadness about this movie that is like, it's heartbreaking. They all blame the lost boys. Cause that came out yeah, like and right the, before. And like we said, they were just saying that life is timing, man is bad timing. Maybe. And I remember as a kid when lost boys came out, I think I might've even told the story on here before I actually had the lost boys soundtrack before the movie came out and I couldn't see the movie when it was released. It was rated R. So I didn't get a chance to see it, but I understand what they're talking about because I remember even as like a six or seven year old kid, how big of a deal lost boys was. Yeah. So, but it, you know, even with that said, um, this is a very good documentary. Um, we both watched it, I believe, on Amazon. It's available for rent for $4.99 if you want to check it out. Um, but it's a really, really good documentary. I definitely want to look into getting my hands on a copy of this, if at all possible. Um, I highly recommend it. 
um, you know, uh, and we have our five star rating scale here on the show. And I'm going to give this one four stars because I just I thought it was great. Right with you. Hey, you know, four stars out of five on the What's Real Pod movie review scale. And we always try to read the taglines no matter what, just as a tradition. But of course, being the doc, no real t- tagline. But you don't need a tagline when your movie's called Wolfman's Got Nards for crying out loud. Hey, you know. Yeah, and I thought that was also a really nice way to sum it up is like they would kind of like, you know, have the crowds and stuff yeah, yelling it and yeah, people saying it. For Horace. It's uh, and also too, I don't know if you saw this or not. Did you watch through the credits by chance? No. So during the credit roll, they show Andre Gower with every single interview subject one-on-one. And he's like, oh, I want to show you this. And they're like, what? He still has the Stephen King rules shirt from the movie. That's awesome. And like, and he's like, here, check it out. And like the fans are like, oh my God, like, I can't believe you still have this. Like I have a replica, it, of course, you know, your boy. I mean. Yeah, dude, it's it's a great shirt and it's a really cool thing. And it's just seeing their react. I, I would even recommend if you have the the ability to do so, throw it on real quick and just watch through the credit sequence because just seeing people's reactions, like people are like lighting up one after another. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah, definitely um, check it out. But yeah, definitely highly, highly recommend this. That's Wolfman's Got Narge. You can check it out on Amazon Prime. It's available for rent right now. It uh, gets the uh, very, very high recommendations from us here on the podcast. So we are going to take a quick commercial break and it is time for the big return of the most action packed segment in weekly podcasting Thursday night primary. I hear those explosions in the distance. Hey, y'all. I'm telling you, we got to get the fuck out of here before we get killed. Uh, nowhere to run 1993 Jean-Claude Van Damme. So stay tuned guys. We'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast. If okay. we don't die. Hey everyone, it's The J with the What's Real Podcast, here with Dad's Pub and Grub. What would Dad do? Suppose Dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family? Even your little brother? Check. Well, that's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. And of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people they love to hang out with. And so Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot too. Check us out on social media apps and at dadspub.com. That's dadspub.com. Welcome to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back in the J. It's that time once again. What do we got this week on the goof front? There is never a lack in goofs in the world of Jared, Hate and Cam on the What's Real podcast. In episode 48, the Thanksgiving extravaganza, Gobble Gobble Hate Yelp is no exception. First off, legendary rapper and hip-hop artist Snoop Dogg seems to have no lines or boundaries on what he'll sign on for for collaborations and some loot. Can't necessarily blame him, (laughs) but he is collaborating with WWE's The Undertaker. Did you hear about this? Yeah, for some of the weirdest looking merch I've ever seen. So it's a Snoop Dogg and Undertaker 30-year celebrations of Takerdom. I guess extravaganza. 
So yeah. uh, if you want some Snoop Dogg Undertaker collaboration gear, head on over to WWE.com in their merchandise section and you'll find it. Yeah, I mean, think about it, dude. Whenever you think of The Undertaker, who comes to mind first other than Snoop Dogg? Nah, man. You know, like, what, yeah, what can you say? It's like, geez. Yeah, he'll just put his name on anything at this point. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm a big Snoop Dogg fan. I grew up with Snoop Dogg. I still love a lot of his older music. Oh, I love him. But Jesus Christ, dude. Like, do you need that much? Like, how much money do you need right now? Like, what is your... Well, that's like when they called uh, Taker. You know, like, Mark, you know, putting this thing together with Snoop. What do you think? He's like, Snoop Doggy Dog. Like, He's no, probably so confused. Like, no, we're doing a thing with you and Snoopy from the Peanuts cartoon. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what he thought. Yeah. <laughs> like, is this for, like, is this for Snoopy? Kids? Well, fuck it. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> like money. And then this comes out and he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, never gets old. Next up, hey, you know, on Goose or Goose for the 48th episode. So I don't know if you caught any of the AMAs, the American Movie Awards over the weekend. Speaking of that, The Weeknd appeared on the show. He did some songs, but his face was fully bandaged. Did you see any of this? I didn't at all. I actually saw some stuff from the AMAs, but this I missed. So he weirdly had facial bandages on, where and it looked like black eyes. Okay. But here's the thing. It's the AMAs. It's not SNL. And nobody said anything about it. Nobody said, like, he was in an accident or anything. Was so on Twitter and all this, something? it was this ongoing thing. Well, it turns out because as we know, hey, you know, recording artists, he's an artist. This is going in with his gimmick of what he's been doing with his music and his videos, where I guess if you watch the videos, he's been hurt. And there's been this thing with these deranged super fans that decapitated him. I went down a rabbit hole, hey, you yeah, I just like, I, I, dude, I went from the weekend being bandaged, so I'm like, what the fuck is this? Was he like hurt and showed up to falling down a rabbit hole of hell with why he's doing this? Yeah, dude, this just like seriously sounds like something you just completely made up to me. Like, I know that you didn't, but it just like I knew nothing yeah, like, about what? it. Yeah, that's exactly like you explaining it. I'm like, the fuck is this? Like, it's probably the, the way you feel like reading about it. Yeah, he's on the red carpet, like with these facial bandages on. He looks like, uh, you know, we talked about that terrible ass John Carpenter Chevy Chase movie. Yeah, the memoirs of an invisible man or something. (laughs) Dude. Next up on. Uh, Yeah, no, what's up? No. Another. No, I was, I'm just kind of shaking my head at this. Like, okay, that's fucking shit's weird. Well, that's now. that's that's what's great on this this segment when I throw this shit at you. Yeah, you're just like, what? Like, is the J fucking with me? Like, no. The weekend was on the actual AMAs performing in facial bandages that were you know he's working like pro wrestling. So everything correlates here on what's real. And that's why we're under the pop culture umbrella. Hey, you know, everybody's working. You know, that's the name of the game. Next up, we got um, Mortal Kombat 11. The newest Mortal Kombat game has a ton of DLC, downloadable content that it's been known for. Such cool things as RoboCop, Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, the newest one being Sylvester Stallone is fucking Rambo on Mortal awesome. Kombat. It's goddamn awesome and expensive, especially after you spent eight Mondo <laughs> like the J on a PlayStation 5. However, newer skins are coming out. Hey, Ed, don't know if you saw this yet. They're actual classic movie skins of the Mortal Kombat movie from the 90s. That's cool. You you got that right. Our man, we always shout him out, Christopher Lambert. Oh, Christopher is, is Lambert. Part of it is Raiden. 
And everybody's going nuts, of course, because what can't turn into controversy in 2020, including fourth round Mortal Kombat DLC skins. But everybody's going nuts because they're like, I don't know why they didn't have uh, the chick from the movie as Sonya. Ronda Rousey sucks. Oh, yeah. I don't know how, like, the disdain for Ronda Rousey, but, like, even this caused people to talk shit on her. Do you remember who that was? Yeah, it was the chick from uh, Billy Madison. Yeah, yeah, I forget her name, but, like, yeah, definitely. It's the same. So, like, that's kind of... her. Yeah, I mean, I guess I see the point, but, like, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of weird that they're... And I don't mean it in a bad way. It's kind of weird that they're doing it at all. So, it's like... (laughs) <laughs> I guess I would just kind of be happy that they're that, that Lambell got his. So it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, I know it's not it's what we always exactly say, you what know, you want, but I'm willing to take it. Cares. Yeah, yeah, it's like the, the, here. Here's an easy way to do this. I'll, I'll, just just a tip of advice. Uh, if you think it's stupid, then don't fucking buy it. Do something <laughs> else. Like whatever. Uh, it makes no sense. And and you would say like, well. We're, we're getting in our forties now. Maybe we're out of touch, but it's like anybody bitching about the original movie cast is our age. They saw the original movie. So they're just nerdy basement dwelling goofs. that are like, yeah, fuck Ronda Rousey is Sonya. I want my chick from Billy Madison is Sonya. Okay. Like, all right, all right John. Like, yeah. I guess here, then I guess become a fucking video game programmer. And then you get to do that shit. Cause you know how to do it. Yeah. Okay. So some classic Mortal Kombat skins. Hey, you Okay, that's cool. We though. will. We're gonna round everything out with the Thanksgiving extravaganza. Is something we all should be giving thanks to and positivity. As I don't know if you've seen this, hey Ed, but it's a huge viral video this week where an older man in Florida fucking saved a puppy from I, an alligator for real. I did see the article, but I made sure not to watch the video because I'm like, I don't want to fucking see that. Like, <laughs> it's pretty, I'm glad the dude did it. Wild. Good for him. But like, yeah, fuck that shit. I've, I see enough stupid shit in my day-to-day basis. I don't need to see an alligator. Like mother nature's the worst thing of all time. Exactly. Ever. Like for like, it, okay. I'm going to give you guys an example. I may have said this on an earlier podcast. I don't remember, but if you, love mother nature and you disagree with my you know feelings on how fucked up it is look up one thing look up the inside of a deer's mouth i'll just leave it at that if you don't in the j if you don't know what i'm talking about do it when we get off the air or do it now whatever you want to do but i'm telling you it's the most fucked up thing you've ever seen ever it's not it's like not something to watch like right before you're about to bone well, no, I don't, I don't think it's like that. I just think you'd be totally disgusted by deer and happy that they live off fucking plants. <laughs> well, let me say this, too. Speaking of that and the fickle bitch that Mother Nature is, if that's my grandfather, I'm like screaming at him at the top of my lungs. You're like, like dude, we all fuck? love puppies. But yeah, I mean, and again, like you said, great that he did it, came out unscathed. The balls of the man, unprecedented ridiculous but yeah if that's if that's pap 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 b he's i'm tackling his ass like jesus christ you're fucking taking a puppy out of an alligator's mouth and I, just he to, pulled it off hey yo just to throw this out there too as kind of a sidebar uh make sure your fucking puppy doesn't go where the fucking gators are you dipshit whoever's dog it was <laughs> yeah 
Fuck. He saved like the, he saved like the neighbor he hates dog. Like yeah, I don't know why I did that. It was adrenaline. Yeah, they come outside like you son of a bitch. Why are you touching my <laughs> dog? It's like because a fucking gator was gonna eat it. It's like I know I bought it for gator food. It's not my pet. Like, oh, like that's how that was state. our insurance scam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fucking Florida. But as I say, he oh, with Snoop Dogg collaborating with Taker himself to the weekend, pulling a pro wrestling gimmick at the AMAs to arguments over classic movie Mortal Kombat skins to a grandpa saving a puppy from a gator. Goofs are goofs. Goofs. So that's it for us this week here on the show, guys. Hope you all had a very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanks for listening to the show, of course. Uh, If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to throw us a five-star review. Helps get some more eyes and ears on the program. Of course, you could listen at all your other favorite podcasting platforms, such as Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and every week on ChurchillPictures.com. Don't forget to give us a follow over on the Twitter machines at What's Real Pod one that's the number one. So again, that's what's real pod one. And if you want to email us anything at the show here, you could do so at what's real pod at gmail.com. Once again, that's what's real pod at gmail.com. Uh, got a lot of fun stuff for you guys next week. As we already mentioned, what's real, everybody. Welcome back to the dub R question mark. Of course, it's your boy, the J I am headless and wizardless. So there's nobody else here. I came up with the term. I'm Han Solo all up in this mug, but I hope you enjoyed that. You know, it was a curveball of life thrown at us as happened. Serious technical difficulties with the combination of Cam and the J being pretty swamped and Hey Ed, unfortunately being under the weather for the second time in a few weeks. Uh, the first time he mentioned himself with kidney stones, he had to deal with that gritted through the pain. We mentioned he was formerly Chris Carroll in another life. So he's a tough bastard and he got through it, but uh, another uh, illness bestowed upon Hey Ed, unfortunately, but I I just talked to him today, folks. I can let you know as I speak that Hey Ed is on the mend. It's all good. He'll be back full force next week. We're getting back on tracks. So episode 122 that we recorded did not make the airwaves. It is in the ether out there, uh, unsalvageable, So we will get back on track with episode 122. And as we do consistently, we'll still at least in at least some semblance be covering topics that that we mentioned we were covering that we lost, like Stranger Things, uh, George Carlin, things like that. We'll still be throwing out some sort of thoughts on that. Uh, Ed and I talked about, you know, kind of getting everything back on track because of the curveball of life that was thrown at us this week. But as we do, we called an audible, you know, here on the show, we're huge professional football NFL fans. Shout out to Steelers, baby. Here we go. And we threw the audible out there to kind of throw together some of our ground we cover under the pop culture umbrella that we talked about all kinds of different topics and some of our favorite moments as you just heard of course from goodfellas to roger corman to ultimate warrior and firepower to the waterfall of goofs so uh, we always appreciate you taking the time to spend some uh, time with us and we love you all as i say if you're hearing my voice right now so i'll shut up because this stuff is hard doing it by myself i'm on my like eighth take so if you're hearing this it's one of the few somewhat good ones here so not even in the witching hour as we call it on the show but the jay's doing his thing doing the best he can here picking up the slack but we really appreciate you listening and hopefully this little remix uh, was something enjoyable and entertaining for you and your earbuds or in your car or wherever you may listen. And as we say, we got to shout out the things. Uh, hit us up at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. If you want to interact with the show, shoot us an email. We'll answer it on the air. And of course, hit us up on any of the 
places that you can f- find podcasts nowadays, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, you know, I, I always post on Facebook. You can always hit me up, Jared Bajoris, you know, Jared the J Bajoris, but I don't mind if you hit me up on Facebook. I'm not too personal on there. It's all for my promotional shit anyway, for the most part. Uh, or hit me up through churchillpictures.com. You can find my ass. I'm out there. Or as I say on the show, find my ass. But uh, I'm just going to shut up because I'm ranting now. We hope you enjoyed the What's Real Emergency Special, a What's Real Remix. We'll be back next week with episode 122. I won't be Hey Edless anymore. I won't be Wizardless. The whole family, the whole team will be back together. Join us next week and beyond right here on the What's Real Podcast. What's real?